Well, tonight we're going to continue our series in Mark's Gospel. Last Sunday, in the first half of chapter 5, we saw the confronting authority of Jesus. The strength of Jesus, son of the Most High God, over the legion of demons tormenting a man. And tonight, in the second half of chapter 5, we see the comforting authority of Jesus as he meets two people grappling with sickness. As usual, an outline of the talk is available, as well as a full transcript of the talk uh, on the foyer table. And if you're watching online, you can download that on the live stream page of the Bundy website. Please keep your Bibles open. That's the most important as we're going to look at a number of Bible references together. Let me pray for us. Gracious Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, Father, we pray that you would open the eyes of our heart to see how good and how great Jesus is. Please use me to speak your word uh, with faithfulness. And please help all of us as hearers of your word to be convicted that we might trust Jesus and live for him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, have you ever found yourself in a situation of complete and utter helplessness? I just test to see if this is working. It's not. Still not. It's working. Okay. Now, have you ever found yourself in a situation of complete and utter helplessness? In my first few years at uni, I had this slight tendency to leave things until the last minute. Uh, I had a few subjects at uni where I opened the textbook from its plastic wrapping on the night before the exam. And you get that that beautiful fresh book smell. And uh, I, I was just aiming to get 50%. Now, I'm not proud of it now, okay? Uh, Please don't learn from the terrible attitude of your church pastor when it comes to studying, okay? Anyway, it all came to spectacularly backfire on me when I scored 48.8% in my second year biochemistry exam. And if you don't know how close to passing that is, I prepared a slide for you, okay? Now, that was a problem because I wanted to major in third year biochem. I didn't want to repeat a whole year's worth of biochem just to do that. And so I did what a helpless person would do. I threw myself at the mercy of the biochemistry department and wrote a letter to Professor Weddenhall, the head of biochem. And there I was on my knees pleading for a supplementary exam over summer. I can't remember what I wrote. I probably put in a slide just like that one. And incredibly, unexpectedly, he allowed me to sit that exam that summer, and I passed. I went in to major in biochemistry, and here I am today as a pastor of a church. (laughs) Now, that's not a real example of being helpless, is it? It's an example of being foolish. Now, I think the first time I felt really helpless was at the start of VC. I was 17, and my parents told my brother and I that they were getting separated and divorced. And there have been lots of times of feeling helpless, like late last year when a relative of ours was diagnosed with stage four cancer. Now, some of you in the room have already had these times in your life. And if you haven't, you will. It's inevitable. Times when you feel the ground beneath you gives way, when you feel sick to your stomach, 
when you feel close to despair. Well, what do you do then? Who do you turn to? Well, tonight we're going to meet two people who felt utterly helpless, and in that desperation, they turn to Jesus. And we're going to learn a lot about Jesus. Well, let's meet the first person, and that's Jairus. Mark chapter 5, verse 21, when Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the sea. One of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet and begged him earnestly, my little daughter is dying, come and lay your hands on her so that she can get well and live. So Jesus went with him, and a large crowd was following and pressing against him. Well, after the rejection of the people uh, last week at Gerasenes, Jesus returns to the other side of Lake Galilee. And we're not told exactly where, but it's possible it's Capernaum, where Jesus had been previously before. And if it is, it's not surprising then that there's already a mob of people waiting for Jesus. Because he healed many of the sick people in that town. And maybe word has already traveled that Jesus is coming back. And there's the crowd waiting as Jesus gets off the boat. And the thing was that healing was actually not the main thing that Jesus came to do. And we know that back in chapter 1, he says that teaching the gospel is the reason why he's come. In fact, the healing made life more difficult for Jesus. Often he tells people he's healed not to tell others. It meant that Jesus had to move to more remote places because of the crowds that came, the crowds that probably didn't want much teaching. But Jesus continues to heal. Why? Because of his compassion. And forcing his way to the front of the crowd, we meet Jairus. Someone who probably had a bit of status in the town because he's the synagogue ruler. The synagogue was the local place of worship in the town where Jewish people would go to pray to God and hear the scriptures read and taught. Jairus, as the synagogue ruler, would have had the role of choosing and then supervising the people who were involved in the prayers and the scripture reading. So Jairus is someone of influence. But right now, that doesn't matter to Jesus, because right now he's just a helpless father in need. His daughter is not only sick, she's dying. And Jairus is someone who shows faith in Jesus in his hour of helpless need. Now, right throughout Mark's gospel, Mark gives us these snapshots of what it looks like to have faith in Jesus. And these are clues to help readers of Mark, like us, to know what faith looks like for us. The faith that Jesus responds to. Back in chapter 2, we see the paralyzed man's friends who had faith in Jesus. In Mark 7, we'll see the faith of the Syrophoenician woman who wanted Jesus to drive out a demon from her daughter. In Mark chapter 10, we'll see Bartimaeus, the blind man who cries out to Jesus, for mercy. And here in chapter 5, we're going to meet two people, Jairus and a bleeding woman, who have faith. Now, what does this faith look like? I'm going to help you define it. it I define it as desperate, dependent trust, DDT. Jairus is desperate and dependent on Jesus because he is all out of options. 
he turns to and trusts in Jesus because he knows that Jesus alone can do something about his situation. Uh, There are often times when I feel incredibly helpless in my job. But the times where I've felt most helpless is with families with sick or dying children. Uh, Once I was with a couple at the Royal Children's Hospital, and it was late, it was about 10 or 11 at night, and this couple's daughter needed urgent surgery. She'd been born uh, premature at 27 weeks. There'd been a perforation in her intestine. And I was with the couple when one of the surgical team said to them, your daughter will die unless we operate. And the surgeons went into the operating theatre with their tiny daughter who could fit in the palm of a hand. And the three of us just sat outside the operating theatre completely helpless. And I can only imagine how helpless this couple felt. So I did the only thing I could do with them and I prayed with them. And we cried out to God for mercy and healing. And God heard and answered those prayers as the surgical team were able to fix the perforation. And that tiny baby is now a healthy and happy girl in primary school. Now, I can't read about Jairus' daughter without thinking of that incident and remembering that sense of helplessness. But the good thing is Jesus sees our helplessness and he responds to DDT. Jesus is willing. He goes with Jairus to walk towards his home. Now imagine walking with a crowd pressing in on you, wanting a piece of you, and it must have been incredibly slow, especially for Jairus. Now what would be worse if, is if Jesus stopped walking for a reason. And that's what happens. Enter the bleeding woman, verse 25. Now, a woman suffering from bleeding for 12 years had endured much under many doctors. She'd spent everything she had and was not helped at all. On the contrary, she became worse. Having heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his clothing. For she said, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be made well. And instantly her flow of blood ceased, and she sensed in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Uh, The crowd of people following Jesus is the perfect context for this woman because she is on a secret mission. You see, she shouldn't actually be there in that crowd. According to the ceremonial laws of Leviticus 15, Because of this constant bleeding, she would have been considered unclean. According to the Old Testament law, certain bodily discharges of men and women made you unclean for a period of time. Now, note, this is not a law regarding uh, morality. It's not about sin. This lady isn't sinning in her bleeding, but her bleeding has made her ritually or ceremonially unclean. And these laws in the Old Testament about clean and unclean were a matter of reminding people of God's holiness and how to approach him and how to live with his people. Now, that meant she could not go and worship at the temple and she should not come into contact with others, otherwise they would become unclean. Now, I want you to imagine then how much suffering this woman is going through. Now, there's the actual physical suffering, the the bleeding itself. 
There's the economic suffering. She's spent all her savings on medical treatments that don't work. There's the emotional suffering. I mean, this has been going on for 12 long years. There's the social suffering, isolated from people, otherwise they become unclean. There's the spiritual suffering because she can't worship at the temple. Uh, This lady is completely different to Jairus. No status, no influence, ritually unclean. Jairus falls dramatically in front of the crowd at Jesus' feet, and this woman quietly sneaks through the crowd to get to Jesus' feet. But the one thing she has in common with Jairus is her DDT. In a state of complete helplessness, her desperate, dependent trust drives her to Jesus. Maybe he can do something for me. If I just touch his cloak, and he does do something, instantly the woman knows. Her bleeding stops. She's highly aware of what's going on in her body for years, and she knows she's been healed by Jesus. Part one of the mission accomplished. Part two now to sneak away quietly. Except she's busted. Verse 30. Immediately, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? His disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing against you, and yet you say, Who touched me? But he was looking around to see who had done this. There's lots of people touching him, but right now there's only one with DDT. Jesus felt it too. He knows that someone is responsible. He stops on his journey to Jairus' house and he looks at the crowd and imagine now how the woman's feeling. Hoping against hope that Jesus' gaze won't lock on her. Perhaps even worse than suffering this bleeding is now the risk of shame in an honor-shame culture. Now, some of you have grown up in that kind of culture. It's terrible, isn't it? Jesus might expose her for what she's done, how she's been bleeding for 12 years, how she shouldn't be there, how she's taken something from him without asking. She is vulnerable. So rather than being found out, she comes clean. Verse 33, the woman with fear and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Daughter, he said to her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace and be healed from your affliction. Jesus' reaction to her is completely unexpected. You know, last week we saw the confronting authority of Jesus, his frightening power to calm storms, to drive out demons, and this woman is expecting that kind of authority. Instead, though, what she gets is the comforting authority of Jesus. Instead of calling her unclean, Jesus calls her daughter. Instead of rebuking her for taking from him, Jesus commends her faith that has saved her. Instead of fearful shame, Jesus leaves her with peace and healing. Rebecca McLaughlin, in her great book, Jesus Through the Eyes of Women, puts it so well. Instead of humiliating this woman, Jesus validates her. She's been excluded from the temple for 12 years and now she's welcomed by the one who is the temple where we meet with God. 
If we come to Jesus with our need, our desperation and our shame, we can know he will receive us with tenderness too. He may not heal us here and now. He doesn't promise that. But when we come to him in need, he surely turns himself towards us and receives us. Just as he received this woman's touch and justified her actions. Daughter, your faith has made you well. It's a beautiful scene, isn't it? The comforting authority of Jesus responded to this woman's DDT. Why? Because of his tender compassion. Jesus gave this woman more than she could have asked or imagined. Now, let's not forget Jairus. For this pause to speak to this woman Precious seconds are ticking by, and you can imagine Jairus just quietly tearing his hair out. And then the unthinkable happens in verse 35. While he was still speaking, people came from the synagogue leader's house and said, your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? When Jesus overheard what was said, he told the synagogue leader, don't be afraid, only believe. Imagine those words, your daughter is dead. They must have sucked the life out of Jairus. There is nothing worse than outliving your children, burying them. And what must have made it worse is thinking, if only Jesus is so near my house, if only I'd gotten to him earlier, if only he hadn't stopped. But that doesn't matter now. She's dead. And in that moment, Jesus says, no need for fear, Jairus. Just faith. Only belief. You know that DDT you showed before when you fell at my feet? I want you to show it again. And they reached the house, verse 37. He did not let anyone accompany him except Peter, James, and John, James's brother. And they came to the leader's house, and he saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but asleep. And they laughed at him, but he put them all outside. As Jesus did from time to time in Mark's gospel, he takes only his inner circle of the three disciples from from the 12, Peter, James, and John, and they will be witnesses of what will happen next. They get to the house, and it's possible that they were, they were professional mourners at Jairus' house. We don't have them in this culture, but in some Asian cultures, you hire professional mourners. Hence why they went from weeping to laughing, which seems pretty insensitive. But what they find delusional is Jesus' statement that this girl is asleep because Jairus' daughter is well and truly dead. Verse 40, he took the child's father, mother, and those who were with him and entered the place where the child was. Then he took the child by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which is translated, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl got up and began to walk She was 12 years old. At this point, they were utterly astounded. Then he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this and told them to give her something to eat. 
Here in this young girl's room filled with death and grief, Jesus shows us once again his comforting authority. He reaches out to touch the hand of this dead body, something that should have made him ritually unclean. But this is the Son of God, Most High. Jesus is not afraid of death's curse. Instead, the power that healed the bleeding woman now brings the dead to life. And with those precious words, little girl, get up, Jesus wakes the dead as easily as I wake my children from an afternoon nap. Except my teenage children. Now, those words Jesus said to Jairus, only believe would have been ringing in his ears as he stood there, dumbfounded. As with the bleeding woman, because of his compassion, Jesus had done more for Jairus than he could ask or imagine. Some application. I thought I'd save some time and and go to chat GPT to prepare my sermon this week. (laughs) So I entered it in, right? Three-point sermon for young adults, Mark chapter 5, 21 to 66. Gave me three points within 30 seconds. Terrible. Because most of it was about you guys. There must be a lot of sermons out there about us. It did not blow me away about Jesus. And that's the first application always, isn't it? It should blow you away, take your breath away about Jesus. Let's do that first, okay? You should walk away tonight with a bigger, richer, deeper understanding of Jesus. And the thing I want you to see tonight is that Jesus is both strong and gentle. Now, if you came last week, you've already seen his strength, commanding strength. He's strong over storms and demons. Tonight, you've seen his strength again against sickness and even the greatest enemy, death itself. But I want you to see the gentleness. Look at how he calls the woman who's been suffering for 12 years, daughter. He treats her with such love and dignity, giving her not only healing in her body, but dignity in front of this crowd because her saviour does not consider her unclean. Look at the gentleness of Jesus with this 12-year-old girl. He told them not to tell others about the resurrection because he didn't want this girl to be swamped by busybodies. And he's concerned that she gets food because apparently dying works up an appetite. One of the Old Testament prophecies that Jesus fulfills is found in Isaiah 42, where it says of him, he will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. I love that phrase, a bruised reed he will not break. Now think about how fragile a bruised reed is. Now, to most, a bruised reed is useless, something you reject and you discard. But for Jesus, bruised reeds are broken people. Wounded physically, emotionally, mentally, socially, spiritually. The bleeding woman is a bruised reed. Jairus and his daughter are bruised reeds. 
The gentle ministry of Jesus is not about violence. It's not about oppression. The gentle ministry of Jesus is not about control and abuse. You know, there's this misconception that gentleness is weakness. No one strives to be gentle, do they? But gentleness is not weakness. I hope that what you see is that Jesus is not weak. He's gentle. Gentleness is strength under control. Strength used not for self-seeking purposes, but strength that is used for the good of others. There are plenty of people who are strong but harsh, strong but self-promoting, strong but aggressive and controlling. Uh, can I ask, who, who is this? Who's this? Tate, yeah. If you don't know who this is, it's okay. You haven't missed much. But Andrew Tate, since last year, has been blowing up on social media. He's already been banned from a couple of platforms, but for many boys and young men, he has become a model of masculine strength. A professional kickboxer, self-disciplined, shredded physique, always standing in front of a luxury car, a jet, or a mansion. Surrounded by attractive women, sexually dominant, outspoken against woke elites and cancel culture. Self-styled as a defender of traditional values of men doing their duty, providing for and protecting women. And many believe that this is all just a thin veil for aggressive misogyny. Tate is currently in a Romanian prison with his brother Tristan under investigation for rape and trafficking of women. Now, millions of his, of his opponents are cheering and millions of his supporters uh, deny all the charges and affirm that he's innocent and he's just been framed. He's got ex-girlfriends defending him. He's got ex-girlfriends accusing him of being abusive and controlling. Now, if you're a bloke, you can pay $49 per month to join his Hustlers University. That's actually what it's called on his website. And he will disciple you in how to live like him. And the website just has multiple pictures of Andrew Tate everywhere, with his Bugatti, with his jet, all paid for, with guys coughing up $49 per month. And if you're a bloke, he's more than willing to take money from you for using one of his many webcam girls he employs to deceive you out of your money. You see, Andrew Tate uses his strength to help Andrew Tate. There's something insecure, isn't there, about a guy who needs to keep telling you how strong and successful he is. He's always needing to flex all the time, and that is not real strength, is it? There's nothing strong about Andrew Cobra Tate. And yet he's attracting a massive following for his so-called strength. Now, if in some way you are drawn to this model of strength, you can do so, so much better. You see, next time you're utterly, desperately helpless, would you turn to someone like the cobra? Jesus is the strongest person of every room he walks into. But he never feels the need to flex. 
Jesus is the strongest person in every room, but he never needs to dominate others to feel better about himself. Jesus is the strongest person in every room, but he never needs to promote his own brand. Because Jesus is also the gentlest person in every room. And because he's the gentlest, you can turn to him in your helplessness. Because he's the gentlest, you can be weak in front of him and he will not mock you. Because he's the gentlest, you can depend on his strength, not to harm you, but to help you. Look at Jesus on the cross. He had the the strength to destroy all his opponents, all who hated him, and in his gentleness, he died for them instead. Now, how many people do you have in your life who are both strong and gentle? I suspect very few, if you're anything like me. Uh, Maybe you've got one or the other, but it's so hard to find both, isn't it? And that is why you need Jesus, strong and gentle, in your life. Now, after this, Jesus and his disciples leave the Galilee region, and they head to his hometown of Nazareth. And here we learn something of Jesus' family. He was the oldest of four brothers. Maybe you didn't know he had four brothers. He had more than one sister as well. We don't know exactly who they are. And Mary is mentioned, but not Joseph. So it's likely that by now, uh, Joseph... Uh, Jesus' dad might have passed away already at this point. Now, you'd think that Jesus would be returning to a hero's welcome in his hometown, you know, parade, everything. Word would have traveled about all the amazing things Jesus' hometown boy has done. And now, for the first time, they can see Jesus' ministry firsthand. And as Jesus does, the first thing he does is he goes and he teaches at the local synagogue. And his hometown, in fact, recognizes something of his authority. They see his wisdom in teaching. They recognize the power in his miracles. But here is the conclusion that they reach, verse 3. So they were offended by him. Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, among his relatives and in his household. He was not able to do a miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he was amazed at their unbelief. Now, where I used to think that Australia had a tall poppy syndrome problem, but clearly it could not have been worse in Nazareth. I mean, this is where the Son of God was raised. Surely his family, his friends, his neighbors, they'd be the first people to recognize the identity of Jesus. And it turns out the opposite is true. Uh, Have you heard that phrase, familiarity breeds contempt? That is what the Nazarenes are showing Jesus. They are full of FBC. Okay, that's the opposite of DDT. They are offended. Even, you know, back in Mark chapter 3, his family, his own family, think that Jesus is out of his mind. Who do you think you are, mate? You think you're better than us, carpenter boy? And even Jesus was amazed at their unbelief. Now, Jesus, it's not that he couldn't heal because he didn't have the power to heal. Remember what Jesus does? He heals in response to faith. And he did not see much faith in his hometown. 
Now, why does Mark record this episode right next to Jairus and the bleeding woman? And I think it is to contrast two different responses to Jesus. And to put that question before us, how will you respond, FBC or DDT? Now, Australia as a nation at the moment is full of FBC. Uh, We have a Christian heritage of some sort, whether that's in Parliament, in schools, in in hospitals. But Australia has now moved to a post-Christian era. Yeah, 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 we know all that Christian stuff. Look where it got us. Stolen generation, royal commission into institutional child abuse, no trading on Sundays, no to marriage equality. Look, I'm familiar with all that Christian stuff. We've moved on from all that rubbish. Many Australians today have contempt towards Christianity. And the sad thing is that most of the people who have contempt for Christianity have never even heard much about Jesus. But it's not just the nation as a whole, is it? It's, it's also individuals like me and you. Now, people who think that we're familiar with all this, for example, I grew up going to church my whole childhood and teenage years. I went to an Anglican school for four years. I attended Sunday school. I heard all the Bible stories, but by the time I got to uni, I could not have explained to you much about Jesus, who he is, and what he did. When I got to uni, I decided to sort out what I actually believed. So I joined, in O-Week, I joined three different Christian groups. And one of the groups was the Christian Union, and I met this guy, Dave Walter, who was my Bible study leader. And every week, Dave patiently opened the Bible with me. First, we read through Mark's Gospel, then uh, the letter of Romans. We read it together. And every week, he answered my questions, and I got to know Jesus. A couple of years earlier, when my parents separated, I I thought that God had somehow, he'd abandoned me, he was distant from me, and Dave showed me from the Bible that God never abandoned me. How could he when he sent Jesus to find me and die for me? Now, if Dave hadn't helped me, I could have ended up down the FBC path. Instead, Dave led me down the DDT path with Jesus. And this changed the course of my life, and I will be forever grateful to Dave and to God. And maybe you've grown up in a Christian family. Maybe you've attended church, maybe you went to a Catholic school, maybe you heard lots about religious stuff. When your parents took you to a mosque or you went to the temple once a year, you're familiar, you think, with all of this stuff. But do you actually know Jesus? Do you know his teaching? Do you know his claims? You cannot know Jesus and make a decision about him unless you actually get to know him. Now, don't make the same mistake as Nazareth. It would be a real shame to reject Jesus without knowing him. You owe it to yourself to get to know 
the real Jesus. Now, have a look at the DDT, though, that Jesus responds to. The faith of Jairus and the bleeding woman is not perfect, is it? You know, Jairus believed that Jesus could heal, tick, but there's limits to it, isn't there? I'm sure Jairus could not believe that Jesus can raise people from the dead. And the bleeding woman's faith, it's, it's a bit transactional, isn't it? Her faith had no room for actually relating to Jesus. And it's a bit of trust mixed with superstition, isn't it? If I just touch his clothes. And yet Jesus responds to both of their imperfect DDT. Now what this says to you is that your faith in Jesus, it doesn't need to be perfect. It it well might be a work in progress. And Jesus knows this. And what he does in this passage is he shows us that he is worthy of faith, however big or small our faith is. He is stronger than we can imagine. So Jesus says, only believe. Now in verse 34, Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Now that's a word that means more than healing. Jesus has not come just to give us healthy bodies. He's come to save us completely, to give us a right relationship with the living God. Now, the word save takes on a new meaning when we see Jesus dying on the cross because Jesus died on that cross to save us, to pay the price of our sin against God, to save us from judgment and eternal death when we were completely and utterly helpless. We cannot pay that price ourselves. We need a savior to bring us back to God. All we can do is trust him so that he can call us daughters and sons. Now, faith is, it's not just about asking for healing. It's not just about asking for a share house, a car park, to pass an exam. Faith means that we can be forgiven for our sin. Faith means that Jesus can bring us real hope even after death. On another occasion of complete helplessness, Jesus was speaking to a woman called Martha. And Martha was a sister in a family that Jesus dearly loved. And Martha was in this place of utter helplessness because her brother Lazarus has just died. And and like Jairus, Martha believed that if Jesus had just gotten there sooner, he could have prevented Lazarus, her brother, from dying. And then Jesus gave her these words in John chapter 11. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And then he went on and he actually brought Lazarus to life. But what if Jesus can raise not only Jairus' daughter and not only Lazarus, but what if he can raise Lazarus? us from the dead and keep that promise and what if he can deliver us from the greatest fears that we have not just in this life but in the life to come I mean what do we need to fear if we no longer need to fear sin and death do you need to fear a week do you need to fear not making friends 
Do you need to fear college life and peer pressure? Do you need to fear choosing the wrong course, wasting years? Do you need to fear inflation and interest rates? Do you need to fear housing affordability, singleness, divorce, infertility, stage four cancer? Jesus, strong and gentle, he knows our helplessness. And he can deliver more than we can ask or imagine. And all he wants from us is our D-D-T. Let me pray. Gracious Father God, we thank you for the stunning authority of Jesus. He can heal the sick and raise the dead. But we thank you that that comfort is there in the authority. Thank you that Jesus is strong and gentle and that he will not use his strength against us. Father, help, help us to be like Charis, to be like the bleeding woman, that we might have desperate, dependent trust. Father, please spare us from the contempt that Nazareth showed him. Help us, Father, to be people who are willing to learn and to do something about what we learn about Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.